Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Just before we start today's show, uh, Mid-Atlantic listeners, I'd like to implore you to go over to our new YouTube channel. Yes, you've heard it. We finally are putting our shows up on YouTube. Quite simply, go onto YouTube, search for Mid-Atlantic Podcast to subscribe to our channel. It's incredibly important that you do so for the sake of the algorithm. Some jiggery poke, which I don't quite understand, but you can watch all the episodes there. And please, for the love of all things holy, please subscribe to the channel because it really will help me out. Now, plus, for an exclusive experience, visit Royfield.com and sign up to our newsletter. Now, this will give you access to the live podcast recordings on Zoom, where if you are in the audience, you can engage and ask questions with our expert guests. So join us on this journey of exploration and understanding of the world of politics in the US, in the UK and globally. Subscribe and sign up today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. The United Kingdom is a great country. Never, never been a good bet to bet against America. Hi, hello and welcome. Welcome to the Mid-Atlantic Podcast, where we delve into the intricate tapestry of cultural politics and history. I'm your host, Boyfriend Brown, and today I'm in Birmingham. It's a bit cold, hence the scarf. I'm not taking it off. In today's episode, we're taking you on a journey into a topic that has shaped human civilization like few others, war. With us is acclaimed author John Horgan, a seasoned American writer and author of the seminal work, The End of War, a book that came out over a decade ago but continues to challenge our perceptions of conflict. John applies the scientific method to the concept of war, leading to a radical yet compelling conclusion. Biology, humans are as just inclined towards peace as they are towards violence. War, he argues, is not just a preordained part of our existence, but something which can be solvable, a scientific problem, akin to curing cancer. Un- however, unlike cancer, which is an inherent aspect of nature, war is a creation of our own making. 
and we have within our power to unmake it. John, is that a fair summation of your book? Yeah, that's pretty good. And thanks for the pitch. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on your show. Was my intro so compelling that you want to reread your book? (laughs) If I need to reread my book, it's because war keeps happening. And I feel that people need more than ever to realize how terrible war is and to realize also that if we have the collective will to get rid of war, to get beyond this period of militarism, we can do it. So my book is a plea for for optimism and especially in dark times, and we're in dark times right now, I think people need to hear this optimistic message. You wrote the book just over 10 years ago now. I think it came out in 2012. We're at the end of 2023. And to your point, we are in dark times. There's a war, a massive conventional war in Ukraine. Um, There is now a renewed uh, surge of violence. There's a war between Israel and Hamas. There is a war in Ethiopia. There are war, there's war in many bits of the world. Is there anything which has maybe happened in the last, what, 11, 12 years since you've written the book, uh, which has made you maybe to, to rethink any parts of your treaties and your thoughts about human conflict? I am, I'm a little bit more pessimistic about how we can get to a world without war, how we can demilitarize I wrote my book when Barack Obama was president, and Barack Obama wasn't as anti-war as I thought he would be when I voted for him. I voted for him twice, but um, looking back, he was this very rational, intelligent, and decent leader, and I thought it was reasonable to expect that the world was gradually going to become more democratic and more peaceful. And that hope was shattered by the election of Donald Trump, who's just one of many, I would call them anti-democratic leaders that we've had around the world who have been who have promoted the vision, who have espoused anti-immigration policies. And Donald Trump might be reelected next year. That's a real possibility in this country. And even if he isn't, we still have these profound divisions. So, and there's an association between democracy and peace, which we can talk a little bit. So when I wrote The End of War, I didn't see it as, as a completely radical thesis. I thought this period of peace that I envisioned could be a natural consequence of all these trends happening across the world, which Barack Obama exemplified, and things haven't worked out that way. And so that's what, I just think it's going to be harder than I thought when I wrote the book. Can we not, John, take a longer term view of history, which is, let's say, in the Iron Age Sorry, in, in the Stone Age, things were brutish. We lived very short lives. We developed bronze and iron. And yes, conflicts got bigger, but so did our pros- 
prosperity, so did our longevity, so did our scientific advancement, and see the 20th century as somewhat as an anomaly in terms of the ferocity of conflict, but something which is completely on a continuum with our economic and scientific advancement. And then viewing that way, are we really just looking at the early 20th century as really just the reenactment of the 1930s? Relative economic disenfranchisement, a realignment of our economic uh, classes, and ultimately the wars of the 21st century and the rhetoric of the politicians um, is something just for the time. But if we take a wider sweep of human history, nothing much to see here. We're excited because we're in the moment. 50 years hence, we'll look back a bit and go, ha. Yeah, I wish that were the case. One thing that worries me is that the war in Ukraine and the war in the Middle East have led to this upsurge in militarism around the world, uh, which means that lots of countries are buying more weapons. They're beefing up their armies. They're worried about whatever, conflict, possible invasions in the future. This is not just true of Eastern European countries who are threatened by Russia. It's also true of countries in, in Asia. China is enormously increasing its military. And the United States of course, has the biggest military of all, and it's the defense budget of the U.S. has reached an all-time high. The U.S. is also the biggest arms manufacturer and inventor and dealer. So we're spreading weapons across the world. Nuclear weapons aren't as much of a threat as they might have been during the Cold War, um, but they're still out there. And there are nine countries that have nuclear weapons. Any one of those could trigger a catastrophic conflict, another possible World War III. So this is what worries me, not just the wars that are actually happening now, not just uh, the violence in the world that actually is small compared to the huge slaughter of World War I and, and World War II, but it has the potential to become much bigger all the time. And war also is constantly undermining democracy and undermining civilization with all these positive feedback effects. I feel like I'm talking myself out of my own optimism, but I just feel as though if I'm going to get people to, to take the end of war seriously, I have to acknowledge how hard a problem it will be. And right now, there are a lot of counter trends to the end of war. All right. So I, I put it to you, right, that America, since its foundation, has been somewhat of a flawed democracy. Maybe right now it's at one of its most least flawed phases, in that, in theory, all Americans can vote, hence the parentheses, which doesn't really work well on a podcast, but this will also go up on YouTube. And so I'm, I'm doing air quotes here. At the inception of the United States, which has always called itself a democracy, the franchise was incredibly limited. Women couldn't vote. People of color couldn't vote. Most definitely slaves couldn't vote. And only property-owning men could vote. And all the way through 
the history of the United States, as the franchise has got wider, this democracy has engaged itself in war, whether with Mexico, the British in Canada, I don't even mean the, its initial war, I'm on about the War of 1812. It has invaded Cuba. It has messed around with Caribbean countries. Latin American countries invaded them ad nauseum. And America has 800 military bases around the world. Doesn't that undermine your general premise that democracy means peace? Yeah, the connection of democracy to peace, this is sometimes called the democratic peace theory. It's something that Kant wrote about in in the speculative vein more than 200 years ago. Uh, Political scientists have taken it seriously just in the, the, uh, the last century. The idea is that democracies, of course, fight non democracies, but but democracies rarely, if ever, fight each other. And uh, so then the idea is that the more democracy spreads around the world, the less likely war will become. Now, the problem with this thesis, and again, here I am arguing against uh, optimism, but the problem with it is that the United States used democratic peace as a justification for its invasion after the fact, but it's still cited democratic peace theory uh, after the fact to justify the invasion of of Afghanistan and Iraq. We're going to create these beacons of democracy in these formerly uh, violent regions, and that will spread peace and uh, prosperity. So yeah, America is, I do think America, that the U.S. has some justification for being a a moral model to the rest of the world because we've been a half-functioning democracy for quite a while now, but our militarism is extreme. We've never, our version of democracy has never allowed us to get past this militarism and our wars just in, in this century, the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq have given a moral pass to other countries that want to use violence to exert their will. So Russia, Putin, of course, cites the U.S. invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan to justify his invasion of of Ukraine. And Yahoo's government, when they're criticized for committing war crimes against people in Gaza, they say, hey, you guys have been doing this for the last couple of decades, look at all the people you killed in Iraq and Afghanistan. So how can you criticize us for killing civilians in in Gaza? So part of my, to the extent that I have a, a plan for peace, here are my air quotes, it's that the United States needs to recognize how militaristic it is and that its militarism is setting this horrible example for the rest of the world. And we therefore should take steps to get the world, to lead the world past this period of military violence. Uh, That won't be easy, but we should show our good faith by having, by taking steps to reduce our military, to reduce this gigantic military empire that we have that you just described. 800 bases around the world. I think that was the figure you've used. I've seen even higher figures. I mean, our our military empire spans the globe. Pull that back. Talk to other nations, our adversaries like Russia 
and China about how to get past this period when we're threatening each other with these giant armies, which costs money. War and militarism are so wasteful. We need that money for education and healthcare and to come up with cleaner sources of energy to improve our resistance to new emerging viruses. So it's just incredible that the world should be spending roughly $2 trillion a year right now on on ways to blow each other up. So it's not just that war is wrong. It's just, it's also that it's horribly impractical and wasteful and stupid. That's the message I keep pushing at people. Have you not maybe looked at war slightly wrongly, John? War is just politics by the means. If we look at it that way, then war... um, is a nece- can be a necessity, an integral part, and an integral part of actually how we entreat as a community, as a society, as a nation, as a collection of nations, with others. If we just see war as politics, not as something which is abhorrent, but as something which is an extension of something which we just do naturally, then it's not so egregious. Yeah, I'm an oddball. I admit I've had this visceral revulsion toward war since I was a little kid. I think it was when I first learned that there were these things called hydrogen bombs that could fall out of the sky at any moment and annihilate everything. Kill my mom and dad and my brother and sisters and all my friends, uh, possibly all life on earth. I I know the justifications for war, uh, but I've never lost that kind of emotional reaction to war as something grotesque. The way I try to, so one thing I try to do in my writing is to get people to share my horror of war and not to see it as just an extension of uh, politics, a way that that social change happens. So I focus on killing children. To me, if there is any moral principle that is rock solid, it should be that it's not cool to drop bombs on children. It's not cool to drop an atomic bomb on a city filled with children, to drop napalm on villages filled with children. These are things that the United States has done. Hamas, its October 7th attack uh, included the slaughter of children. Israel is now slaughtering children in even larger numbers. How can that be an extension of politics by other means? This is just something that should be completely unacceptable to us. And it's impossible not to kill civilians, including children, in war. That's been shown certainly over the last hundred years, and especially in the wars in this century carried out by the US and Afghanistan and Iraq and the war in the Middle East now. Lots of kids being but but John, to ju- just on that point, because of course I, I, I agree with you, but you need then to have two adversaries that have the same 
understanding and the same vestige in the outcome of the conflict. Because quite simply, if one side is going to say very clearly, we are not going to bomb cities, then the enemy combatants will be in the cities because they'll know that they won't actually then be targeted. And th- and that's the problem, isn't it? And we have an asymmetry there. You, you, dependent on what the conflict is, the, the stakes are going to be always slightly higher for one side than the other. And then that builds in an asymmetry. Th- that utopian no- notion of we cannot do X and Y and Z, then somewhat falls down. Yeah. yeah. For this, for humanity to move past war, there does have to be a kind of moral sea change. Right now, we're habituated to, to war. It happens in reality. It also, war and all kinds of violence are a staple of uh, pop culture. All our visions of the future, almost every single science fiction movie depicts varieties of warfare in the future, sometimes fought by robots against robots, sometimes robots against uh, humans, but it's warlike. There has to be a a recognition by seeking all that possess power or are seeking and are seeking political legitimacy that violence is not the way. Um, I, I just happened to be reading rereading War and Peace over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it occurred to me that it might give me insights into what's happening in the world today. And um, so War and Peace, of course, depicts the Napoleonic Wars, the, the war of uh, France against, against Russia in the early 19th century. And Tolstoy just rubs your face in how horrible war is, how it turns us into monsters at all different levels, from the individual soldiers all the way up to the jerks like Napoleon who are leading these masses of people uh, into battle with catastrophic consequences. What's weird is that Tolstoy, there's this kind of philosophical framework for the whole book that's really fatalistic. Tolstoy basically says that nobody really has free will, nobody has agency, not even Napoleon himself, who's under the influence of all these titanic social forces that he can't possibly understand, let alone control. But Tolstoy renounced that kind of fatalism toward the end of his life and just specifically said, war is awful, there is no possible justification for it, all forms of violence are are beyond the pale, and we have to stop that. And he urged nonviolent resistance. And his works on nonviolence inspired Gandhi and Martin Luther King, which contradicted Tolstoy's earlier fatalism. Tolstoy himself showed that if you persuade people through uh, powerful rhetoric, you get them to recognize that something we're doing is wrong, you can actually change the course of history. Now, a lot of people have ignored Tolstoy and Gandhi and Martin Luther King on the superiority of not violence to to violence, but at least it has worked in some limited ways. We just have to get more people to realize that nonviolence is the way to bring about social change. And this includes militant groups, 
like Hamas, and it also includes nation states like Russia and China and the United States. You know what? I, I, I don't know, John. And this is the reason why I'm here to be schooled. Because I know you teach at a university just around the corner. So I'm here, I'm here uh, as a student. If I look, if I, I've been talking a lot to people about Israel and Palestine and the current conflict between Israel and Hamas and using, it's not a perfect analogy, but the British against the IRA in Northern Ireland and that conflict starts in the late 60s and is the genesis of it isn't a million miles away from Israel and Palestine, a, a, a planted people, but it's in the 1600s, Scots go to Ireland, become the Northern Ireland, go to the, the become the dominant class, etc. It's not a million miles away, but in terms of the, how that conflict ends is both sides realise the futility of continuing the conflict the way that it, it actually is. That the IRA realise they're not going to bomb the British government in, into submission, and they, 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 and and for them to pursue politics in that way, they're not going to have the majority support of their constituents, the the nationalists or the Catholics within Northern Ireland. And since they put down the gun and the bomb, they're now the largest political party within Northern Ireland. And the reason why I say that is because. Within the framework of that conflict, there were lots of rules. So the IRA did things like they were going to blow somewhere up and they would actually then call up the British the British authorities and say, we're going to set a bomb off somewhere in the next 24 hours. And you might want to look at your key installations because we're going to blow one of them up, right? And the British then would move civilians out and whatever, and then the IRA would blow it up. That was two entities who were very culturally aligned that could have that level of rules-making in conflict. If you look at World War II, there's an escalation of violence between countries, at least in Europe, who are already at war. So the air war doesn't start immediately in terms of dropping bombs on either side. Both sides are, are reluctant to actually do that. Britain and France do not drop bombs on Germany for about six months because they're like, they're going to drop them on us. And I think there is an inherent problem with a total blanket statement of saying we should be non-violent because it means that we all need to have approximately the same stake in the outcome. And one of the great things about the civil rights movement was it does subvert the notion of being the angry minority. And actually what Martin Luther King and their civil rights leaders do, using Gandhi's experience, but doing it in the 50s and the 60s is realised the power of the image. So them being clubbed over the head, they could be non-violent, okay? And they win sympathy. That was a powerful message. What we are seeing is the power of the symbol of the victims of war within Gaza right now. World sympathy 
is swinging away from Israel because people are seeing the remorseless bombing of Gaza and the fact that over a million people have been displaced within a six-week period. Un- people can't get their heads around it. However, both sides are furious because they say the stakes are so high. It's existential for both sides. This isn't America going into Grenada in the early 1980s. Or dare I say it, America going into Iraq won the first war of the second war. That's not existential for America. But for Israel and Palestine, this is potentially existential. Israel says, we need to do this because you hate us for being us. The Palestinians say, we've been denied our own state for 70 odd years and we have a fundamental injustice. And this is fundamentally at the cause of not of all wars, but the majority of wars. So to have a blanket statement of, let's say, some level of ethics and kumbayarism doesn't work blanketly, does it? I would submit that what is happening in the Middle East shows the futility of using military force to to get your way, to achieve some kind of uh, political goal. That conflict has been perpetuated by attacks carried out by both sides that the other side cannot forgive. So it's just reinforcing the hatred in ways that make the conflict seem totally intractable now. What happens during war, and this happened during World War II, as you just described it, is that uh, once the war starts, people might have just war principles and limits to the kinds of things that they're going to do. But once war starts, then the goal becomes to win at any cost, and you start to really hate your enemy. And you deny them their humanity, and that allows you to carry out attacks against civilians, to to incinerate children, as the U.S. did in uh, Germany and Japan during World War II, dropping firebombs on Japanese cities to annihilate as many people as possible. War turns us into monsters. The other thing is, and your question is really, Groups seeking legitimacy, groups groups who want the same freedom that some of the rest of us enjoy, what is their recourse if they can't use force? The U.S., we started, this country was founded on a violent reaction to the British. How can we deny that to other groups? I guess what I'd say is that uh, violence generally is impractical. There have been studies of Nonviolent activism, comparing it to violent activism, violent rebellions and civil wars and those sorts of things. And nonviolence generally, it's certainly not always successful. Sometimes it's brutally crushed, but nonviolence is more successful, produces better outcomes than than violent resistance, violent rebellions. So there's a political scientist at Harvard named Erica Chenoweth, who's done a lot of research in this area. Here's... Another reason why I think people who are seeking justice in the world um, should consider nonviolent methods and should get their, put their weight behind the, the end of war. And I say this basically to all social activists, even environmentalists, 
as well as people who were seeking economic inequality, equality before the law. We are wasting so much of our energy and money um, on preparing for war, on carrying out war and preparing for war. As I said, the total world budget for war is about $2 trillion. About, two th- about one-third of that is comes from the United States, which has a bigger military than the next, I think, 24 countries combined. It's, we have an enormous military. With all that money, we could address the grievances that people have. We could have better housing and health care and transportation and cleaner environments for people around the world. We could reduce the sorts of problems that lead to social unrest, that lead to civil wars and insurgencies and, and these sorts of things. There's this famous phrase, no justice, no peace. I flip that on its head and say that if you don't have peace, you don't have justice. War is the greatest form of injustice that there is. War reduces the competition between different groups seeking political legitimacy to which side can care, can be more ruthless. And that's not that can never be the basis of a really democratic uh healthy society. So anyway, that's this so the American patriots shouldn't have fired on those British redcoats. They should have just talked it out. They should have kept sending letters to Lord North, the Prime Minister, <laughs> and who was acting on behalf of King George III, and just kept talking it out. Yeah, they might they might have tried that. Remember that no, if you'd have done that, you'd have been Canada. <laughs> they have, and they haven't done too badly. The Canadians have they? Yeah, and remember that, that the Americans, that the colonialists, one of the, the things that they were fighting for was freedom to continue slavery. That was one of the differences between American and British culture at that time. The the British were moving away from slavery and encouraging the Americans to do so. And the American people like Jefferson and Washington, these were slave owners. They didn't want to give up their slaves. So there are a lot of ironies in the American War of Independence. As, as I'm not so much interested in going back and trying to impose nonviolent uh, methods on past conflicts. It's hard to see how Hitler could have been defeated without violence. There are people who have proposed ways that could have been done, but they don't seem very plausible in, even to me. But the lesson of World War II is, to me is not that we should always be prepared to drop bombs on babies in the future, that there is always a justification for doing that. The lesson of World War II, which is the ultimate just war, should be that we should never have to do that again. We should create a world in which you don't have to blow up babies. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I sound, and I'm listening to myself, I sound like a total warmonger. Right? I sound like, at least I sound like a spokesman for the military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned us about. That's what I sound like. And, and trust me, I'm not. But I'm somebody who's trying to just generally poke your thesis. How can we ever get to a world within the world, the way the world is framed at the moment, where we have equality of opportunity and relative equality of outcome so that people do not feel sufficiently disadvantaged and say that, you know what, this outcome is fair. I think at, at the basis of all liberal democracies, and and they're pretty shaky at the moment, right? yeah. the conceit is you have relative equality of opportunity that is increasingly not true anymore since in the last 40 years and relative equality of outcome. And and that is increasingly not true. And I think that's the reason why we live in relatively illiberal times. And then we have perceived in-groups, seeing people or out-groups shouting very loudly. That's the way that they perceive them. Classically, if you're a white, middle-aged, middle-class male, you might understand. Those people have a half head jump. But, but in a classic sense, you see these minorities, whatever they are, black people, brown people, gays, going, you know what? Not only do we need our place in the sun, but things which have historically been told about us or the nation need to be revised. And you've got people who are actually in the in-group feeling like they're being like a new narrative being posed on them. So these stresses and strains aren't even necessarily even economic or even people who are economically disadvantaged, but they feel culturally disadvantaged. With, with that in mind, I think a simple notion of we need to all be nice to each other, which I actually sign up to, is it just feels that it's, not quite fit for the times that that, that that we live in, there needs to be, I think, the ultimate recourse to any political, sociological campaign is, and if you don't do it, we are going to go in with pitchforks. And it's something which Thomas Jefferson absolutely believed in. He believed 
that you don't have any true revolution without blood. And you can't get more American th than him. You're, first of all, you don't sound like a warmonger at all. You're pushing back against my thesis in ways that are totally reasonable. I worry all the time that I'm, I have this kind of naive, romantic view of human possibility. I still think that it's the end of militarism is something that is reasonable to hope for as well as the gradual reduction of the kinds of injustice that you're talking about. I grew up in the 60s. When I was a kid, it was illegal to get abortion in most parts of the United States. There were some states where it was illegal for a black person to marry a white person. Uh, there were these laws against miscegenation. Um, women had far fewer rights than they have today. So did people of color. The idea that we could have a, a black president in the United States would be inconceivable. We came close, at least, to having a female president of the United States. That didn't work. Now, there have been setbacks recently. The overturning of Roe v. Wade, the rise of conservative Republicans who, who want to roll back rights for women and people of color and for gay people. So these are really disturbing trends. But if you look at the overall arc of, of history, there has been a movement toward greater and greater political freedom. My, I tell my students to try to make them optimistic that they have opportunities. So I have kids from all kinds of different backgrounds in uh, my classes, from all different parts of the world, children of immigrants, men and women. And they have opportunities now that were inconceivable when their parents were their age or when I was their age. We're experiencing a period of, we're taking a big step backwards lately. I guess that's what I'd say. But it's not enough to lose hope that we can continue making social progress in the future. If I want to look at the upside of Donald Trump and all these other petty tyrants emerging in the world, it's that people realize how much they have to lose, people in democracies. And people are going to take advantage of, of the opportunities that democracy gives them to push things in the right direction again. But I cannot emphasize how much the fight for Social justice, I believe, will be enhanced, will be complemented, will be accelerated in all sorts of ways by a decline in militarism. Uh, since 9-11, a lot of these rollbacks of democracy in this country, where we just accept more and more surveillance by, uh, by our government, have accompanied these wars that the U.S. is carrying out overseas. So just as war leads to injustice in democracies and all other governments around the world, so the decline of war, I believe, will lead to and aid the, the spread of, uh, of rights for all people. I, I disagree with you. I, I think this is little to do with war and more to do about economics and more about an equitable sharing of resources. 
I, I think that is it. And I think militarism is an is a, a logical outcome of an asymmetry of resources. So uh, America, in a very glib way, America finds itself the economic hegemon after World War II. It has an economic system which it also then needs to protect, uh, which and, and it's within its economic interest to have trading partners with, within Western Europe that can actually buy American goods. It was in, in effect, it loans massive amount of money, call it the Marshall Aid Plan, just whatever you want to call it. So to get these economies back up to speed very quickly so they can buy American goods, the, the, the world's reserve currency stops being the pound, becomes the dollar. That gives America massive economic and global reach. So it needs to protect that, hence bases everywhere. And any notion of American hegemony being threatened by another ideology, communism, means that there needs to be American bases everywhere. It needs to forestall left-leaning governments everywhere, whether it's Chile in 1973, INDA, whether it's propping up the corrupt South Vietnamese regime, et cetera, et cetera. Because this, mass, this massive level of American prosperity needs to be kept. And you could make a really strong argument that from 1945 to let's say the early 2000s when we have the fall of communism yes there are wars vietnam a case in point korea but these are all pretty localized considering what's just happened before and what happened from 1914 to 1918 these are small fry these really are small fry and actually we what we have is unprecedented wealth in the western liberal world and each generation believes that the next generation is going to do better off. Bigger homes, bigger cars, bigger opportunity. It's the wheels coming off that whilst we have a, res- a resurgent China. If you look back 200 years ago, China's GDP was really bigger than that of Britain and that of America. China's share of world wealth collapses in the 19th century and really what we're looking at right now is economic realignment internally of western countries where they realize that neoliberalism has actually failed so you have young people who are now rejoining unions we have we have young people who cannot afford to buy homes and then we have another generation above that who are then angry about the myths that they've been told about, let's say, the American dream, or we don't have a British dream, but how the fact that they cannot necessarily retire as comfortably as they thought, even though they paid their taxes. And all the while that's happening, resurgent China, India on the march now, its economy is bigger than that of Britain, etc. And it's that which is fundamentally, whether it's the rise of your Modi's or your rise of your Donald Trump's, it's not militarism, it's economics and, and an, an equitable, inequitable share of wealth and a lack of growth for your median working classes, which is in the West, which is driving fear of people in the outgroup, immigrants, and the fear of emergent countries. 
not militarism. Yeah, I I feel as though you're talking about capitalism, and there are people who say that capitalism is the that to get rid of militarism you have to get rid of capitalism, and I don't agree with that. I don't. There are people who say you will also need to get rid of religion. That people have all sorts of ideas about what you have to do about some radical reform of culture that is required before you get to a world without war. I don't like any of those ideas because I think they make getting to a world without war too difficult. Capitalism is definitely creating problems now. It's out of control. The tech billionaires have far too much power. They're creating these devices that are totally addictive and are promoting all kinds of uh, unhealthy social habits. leading to more political polarization in this country, for example. But capitalism can also be a positive force. I think most of the big big companies, they certainly will take advantage of big defense budgets and try to get a piece of that pie. But I think most of them want a world without war because it means more predictable markets. They can make more money. They don't have to worry about the disruption of of war. So everything that you're describing is definitely, I'm really worried about some of these economic trends in the world. Inequality is growing. It's especially, it's been exacerbated by, by the pandemic, but it was already, there were already these problems. And in this country, we've just accepted this kind of gross inequality. We glorify the billion, the billionaires in ways that are really unhealthy, but there are counter trends. And some of what you're talking about, maybe this is this just shows my naivete also, or my sentimentality about the young, but I'm hoping that the young people, and I think this is already happening, will recognize the excesses of capitalism, realize that capitalism has to be restrained. I don't know too many intellectuals, social activists who think we can abolish capitalism entirely. It comes down to changing to mundane things like changing the tax structure and making it harder for corporations to well, to hide their profits and to evade taxes, to get more of that money coming in to improve social welfare and health care and education and all those things. So capitalism can be an engine for prosperity, but it also has all these side effects. I have my students read the Communist Manifesto every semester because Marx was right about so many things. He actually predicted that communism would have a lot of positive effects. It would bring people in from, from the fields and bring them into the city where they could learn how to read and be exposed to some culture. He predicted that it would lead to a lot more women in the uh, workforce. It would lead to more culture for everybody and all those sorts of things that had happened. But Marx also predicted that everything would have a price, that there would be nothing sacred that humans would be reduced to commodities that were valued only in so much as they could produce more money for the factory owners. So all of that has come to pass too, but there are things we can do about that if we have the will. And once again, coming back to war, I think it will be easier to do those things, to restrain capitalism if we can also move away from militarism, which is just this gigantic 
black hole into which we are constantly throwing um, so much of our resources. Um, <laughs> are you just proving, Prof, right? And I say this to poke a, a, a little bit of, of fun your way, that you're just part of the liberal university industrial complex because put in front of your students the communist manifesto there i am i'm a one america viewer i'm railing against what you do now i'm a fox news host i'm going that's what's wrong with the liberal elitist uh, universities in america right now yeah i get plenty of pushback from my students by the way, I, I teach a class called War and Science. Basically, I make my students read. Here's my book, The End of War. I make them read this. So yeah, they're a captive audience. But what I encourage them to give me pushback, and oh boy, do they give me pushback. I usually take a poll at the beginning of the semester and say, how many of you think it's reasonable to think that war could end someday? And uh, I'm lucky if there will be one student who raises his hand or her hand and often then when I say, why are you optimistic? They say, I think there's going to be a global nuclear war and it's going to annihilate humanity and there won't be any more war. And I say, that doesn't count. That's not a solution to war. Then I ask them, I pull them at the end of the semester and sometimes a couple of them say, yeah, now I think war can end, but I think they just feel sorry for me. <laughs> uh, and it's the same when it comes to capitalism. I give them marks, not because I think communism or socialism is the answer, but because Marx talks about capitalism, about its pros as well as its cons in ways that are so prescient. Um, and and I, my students are usually surprised by um, Marx, as I was when I read them. I only read Marx for the first time about 15 or 20 years ago. And what I'm trying to do really with my students is not to give them any specific plan for making the world a wonderful place uh, to make it. I'm not trying to give them some kind of utopian scheme. I don't have a utopian scheme. I'm just saying we can do a lot better than we're doing right now. That it's embarrassing. We call ourselves a civilization, and yet we still have weapons of mass destruction. We still, the United States, the most civilized empire in world history, supposedly, we tell ourselves that, is still killing innocent people around the world in the pursuit of its political goals. That's shameful. It's embarrassing. And so I just try to raise my students' awareness of these problems and of the problems of inequality and racism and sexism, which are still with us. And then I leave it up to them to try to do something with those feelings. I don't, I'm way too ignorant I'm not nearly smart enough to have specific plans for ending the war in the Middle East. Jesus, that's a tough one. But history, my, the history that I've experienced personally, just since I was born, gives me hope. I, I became a science journalist in the 1980s when in the middle of the Cold War, Ronald Reagan was talking about the evil empire, the nuclear arsenals of the U.S. and Soviet Union were getting bigger and bigger, enough to destroy all life on Earth many times over. Nobody thought the Cold War would end, and then suddenly it did. I'd say the same of apartheid South Africa. That looked like if that was going to end, that would be a horrible bloodbath, right? And then suddenly it ended without any 
a huge, horrible slaughter on either side is really quite remarkable. So history always disappoints the optimists, but it gives us reason to hope, too. Good things can suddenly happen that are really hard to predict. And that's that makes me think that out of nowhere, there's going to be some politician. I think it has to happen in the United States because we're responsible for a lot of the violence in the world, a lot of the war. And so we have to find the solution for it. I'm waiting for some really smart, charismatic, young politician. I thought you were going to say come along. young, smart, charismatic, African-American, democratic. And a woman. To... John, I completely hear you. Right. And again, I'm not arguing for war, for kinetic conflict. But I fervently believe that the cause for Palestinian statehood, the let me rephrase that a Palesti- a viable Palestinian state is more likely now because of the way that Israel is prosecuting this war. I I am not saying that uh, a viable Palestinian state is worth the 1,200 Israeli lives that were lost on October 7th, and I'm definitely not saying that it's worth the 20,000 Palestinians who have died. But if we view uh, war as politics by other means... The whole world has now turned its attention to this conflict and the majority of people in the world have forgotten about it. That a viable Palestinian state is more likely in, let's say, the next five years than it was, let's say, on October the 6th. Again, I'm not justifying at all what Hamas has done, but the politics have changed. I'll leave that thought. I'll leave that thought. And John, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And can I let you into a secret? Sure. I had a whole load of questions. I haven't asked one. (laughs) I was going to ask you about genetic determinism and war, the role of culture in war. Maybe you touched on that a little, actually. We've talked about a little bit about nonviolence and peaceful solutions. The psychology of soldiers, we haven't touched on that at all. Resource scarcity in conflicts, we have actually touched on that. The influence of technology on the modern society and war, we haven't done that at all. Historical perspective on war, we've, okay, we've done Actually, we have weaved in more of these themes than, than I actually thought. But I was going to step through this. A war and democracy, we have done that. The decline of war thesis, yeah. Actually, a lot of these talking points which I actually had, we have actually touched on, but we've done it in a way which I didn't think that we would. I thought it was going to be much more structured. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, but we need to come back to you, the author, before we complete Natalie's sign out. Are you working on another book at the moment? And if so, what is it? I just finished a book. I'm looking for it over here. I, at the beginning of the pandemic, I decided to learn quantum mechanics the way physics physicists learn it with the mathematics. But I'll be honest, I did that in part because I was so distressed by what was happening in the world, by Donald Trump's presidency, by by other 
anti-democratic trends around the world, then by the Ukraine war. And so I just wanted to escape. And I stopped writing about war and started writing about quantum mechanics. But I then I started feeling as though I was too was too escapist and and so I now I'm writing about war a lot again and about the free will about some of these arguments for fatalism that you see in Tolstoy and also in some modern scientists I'm all over the place to be honest but I really enjoyed this conversation as well all those questions that you that you just rattled off would have been great those are all really important War is a big, complicated topic. It, you can approach it in lots of different ways. I just hope people realize the takeaway from my spiel here is just that we shouldn't accept it. We should never think it's inevitable. War is something that we do. We inflict on each other, and therefore, we can stop it. No, uh, and I think that's fair. War is not inevitable, but to one of the kind of central points of your book this is about resources isn't it but this is are you a group who was resource rich do how do you protect those resources are you a group of resource poor and these resources could be human rights or economic or as fundamental as just land and if you are at that disadvantage how do you overcome that how do you explain to the group that has more resources is the way that you frame it, that you are disadvantaged and it's within both of your interests to share a little bit more. That is the ultimate source of, of, of democracy. But if people, if groups are not interlinked, physically, emotionally, they're more likely to go to war because they will mistrust the other side they will not trust the messenger of in terms of we have the message that you have less resources that you're structurally disadvantaged etc etc so we do need more george or to have less war war but it seems to me though john horgan you're going to war on war and for that sir i definitely commend you um i have spoken to author john horgan who wrote the seminal work the End of War. You also did The End of Science. He's done a whole load of books, which we haven't even really mentioned. Good listener of this podcast, please go over to an internet browser of your choice. Type his name in. If you haven't purchased some of his books, maybe go do that. You can all... John, tell people where they can actually find your works online. Do you have your own website? Are you on the socials? It's johnhorgan.org. johnhorgan.org. It's super simple. As, as simple as that, folks. There you go. This has been one of those episodes of Mid-Atlantic, which a little bit different from the norm. Conversation with somebody who's so- somewhat smarter than me. He's got big books and all sorts. He teaches students. As a student, John, how did I do today? <laughs> you did great. Yeah, my, I wish all my students were as good at at, at finding the, the weak points in, in my, my arguments because this is how I make my arguments better, by, by listening to smart people who see the limits of what I'm saying. So I really thank you for that. Listen, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, how would you grade me then, Prof? Oh, do you get an A+. Very good, good listener. Hopefully you've enjoyed this conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking to John uh, Hogan. Remember, the book is called 
the end of war. It's been out a, li- a little time, but I think considering uh, the year that we've gone through with the continuation of the war in Ukraine, renewed conflict in Ethiopia, and of course the hot now kinetic war within Israel and Palestine, it's prescient that we look at the book and try and understand is there a way out out of this never-ending conflict take care look after yourselves i've been rufio brown bye-bye why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.